Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for who you are and your grace and presence among us. And we have prayed this morning in many ways already, oh, come and meet with us. And yet the truth is you're the one who has led us here to you. You're the one that's called us together. You're the one that's brought us into this room and into this fellowship. Whether we've got long history here or uh, we're a new a presence, you have already sought us and are seeking us today. Some of us have already found our hearts opened to you in a unique way, in a fresh way, in an urgent way, in a grace-given way this morning. You've sung over us and sung in us. You've led us in prayer as we've needed to pray. We thank you, God. So as we turn to your word again in First Peter, would you open us up to hear your voice as our kids have headed downstairs earlier as the apex middle school teens have journeyed down to meet up with Lewis. God, would you speak among us today? May somehow this building on 1780 Feltham Road be full of your life-giving word today for your glory, God, and our joy. Amen. Um, I don't normally give shout-outs, but I do just want to acknowledge that this morning um, an old friend is here from my childhood, um, and I won't name names. I'll let you hunt and find people. But I, I was a part of this church as a kid. Uh, I, I'm, I'm 44. I was born in 77. My family came to Lambrick, I think, the following year, and was here till 84, 85. And when I picture the church I knew in my childhood, it was just in the cafe and I can see Tom Cowan leading uh, and speaking, and um, I can picture my dad and uh, a fellow named Irwin leading songs together, and I can picture about four different Bible study groups. We were a small little church, and, and um, I, this morning as we worshiped, and I just thought about uh, being a kid in this church, being myself in kindergarten or preschool and people that prayed for me and the privilege it is to come and be your pastor and the privilege it is to proclaim God's word in, in faith to you. So I bless you as a church and I thank you for those that have served and prayed and given and been faithful through much and who failed and come back and served again and uh, prayed again and uh, it's a blessing to be a part of Lambrick. So, um, welcome. If you're new into this today with us, you're coming into our ongoing study in First Peter. Um, uh, yeah, that we're titling "Good Faith in a Hard Place." Um, as Daniel McDougall mentioned a few weeks back, uh, commenting on the Apostle Peter's words in First Peter three verse eight, he uses the word "finally." We are on the home stretch of this study, but let's be honest, sometimes it takes a while to get home, okay? So that's the truth. But it's worth it. Um, for all the challenges of studying and teaching this complicated letter, I have 
appreciated every piece, and today's text is no exception. Though initially this, our text for today felt like yet another complicated text, the more I've reflected on Peter's words to us today, the more I've felt that its core invitation is incredibly clear, actually, simple even, helpful, practical, pointed, something I've needed to come back to, particularly as we think about the battle against sin in all of our lives and the longing to be done with sin. Do you know anyone who longs to be done with their own sin? I bet you do. Well, in a way, Peter goes there today in our text. So if you have a Bible with you, open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Um, just have the, the thought as I do that. Back in the day when people all carried paper Bibles, you could hear like the rustling of pages. We don't get to hear that anymore when we open our smartphones. But we do get to hear the, the crinkling of communion cups. And that's fun. So at least we have something. First Peter 4, 1 to 6. I'm reading from the NIV. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in the reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I wonder how many of you, under the guise of good Sunday morning listening, found yourselves completely stuck on the final words of the opening verse of what I just read, where the Apostle Peter says categorically, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Let me read that whole verse for us. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, if you did open your own version of this text, particularly the NIV, which I was reading, you'll notice I've actually changed one of the words, um, just a translation, fear not. Uh, the NIV actually begins this, this final clause of the opening verse with because, not that, but I've chosen to retain the translation that most versions support, not a causal statement because, but a clarifying statement. Arm yourselves with the same attitude that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So beyond a bizarre, minute translation detail, what is Peter saying here? What does he mean when he says to his readers in first century Rome and to us, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin? Because he can't mean that those who suffer physically are now perfect, right? Anyone know anyone who's ever suffered physically? that is now perfect? (laughs) Bryce, amazing. Miracle, child. Um, 
It can't mean that those who suffered physically are now perfect, or, or even just that Christians who suffer physically in the body are forever after morally perfect, done with sin, never to sin again, right? It can't mean that. Not only does the experience of Christians everywhere reject this, but more importantly, Jesus and the rest of the biblical revelation, even other parts of Peter's own letter, flatly reject that. Truth is, and we've talked about this at every turn in this study, Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were suffering, right? Who were suffering because of their faith, because of their open allegiance to Jesus and the gospel, rather than to Rome and to her gods. Peter was writing to Christian slaves who were suffering at the hands of pagan masters. He was writing to Christian wives who were suffering at the hands of pagan husbands because of their faith, suffering socially, economically, politically, and at times physically in the body. And still, several times in this later, speaking explicitly to people who are suffering, Peter has explicitly exhorted them his fellow Christians who were suffering to turn from sin. 1 Peter 1 verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 1 Peter 2 verse 1, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. 1 Peter 2 verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Which tells us that Peter can't simply mean that physical suffering means the end of sin, the end of its presence, the end of its pull in our lives. Not only does the rest of Scripture reject this idea, but the rest of Peter's letter rejects it. As his fellow Christians knew firsthand, experiencing suffering is no instant resolution or quick fix in the battle against sin. Just ask anyone who's ever suffered. Well, think about your own experience. Did your battle with sin end when you suffered physically? Peter can't simply mean that suffering assures an end of sin. So what does he mean then? Ruled out something. What then does he mean? Well, to make sense of this, I think we need to listen to the rest of this passage. Because Peter himself puts this into a context for us that I think actually takes away the complexity and the vagueness and starts to make it clear, simple, even practical, though not easy. So listen again with me to the whole of what Peter says here, especially if you got completely stuck on that one line, okay? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. There's a lot there, as always, right? But at its heart, we need to realize that for many of Peter's readers, his original audience, 
Suffering Christians scattered in exile throughout the northern regions of the Roman Empire in AD 62-63, this part of Peter's letter was describing their everyday lives. Many of them probably felt Peter had been reading their mail. Some, they were experiencing exactly what he was describing. This, they, had, they were suffering. Their suffering came from explicitly following Jesus in a world that worshipped Rome and her gods. And some of you know this. You're living in this right now. You, you might even feel named in this passage as you seek to explicitly, faithfully follow Jesus in a godless or pagan environment of your, your dorm life, your campus life, maybe the work, your community at work or at high school or even your family. Peter's name and experience that many of his readers knew firsthand, that their Christian conversion and their daily faithfulness to Jesus meant a radical reshaping of their personal and public lives, of their way of living, a radical departure from many things that had previously characterized their lives. Lives that the Apostle Peter describes as being spent on evil human desires. Which isn't to suggest that Peter watched the whole non-Christian world as essentially corrupt. I, I want to make that point because I think sometimes we think that Peter is or we make that comment about a public school system or a non-Christian neighbor as though if they're not following Jesus, they are essentially corrupt. Peter's not saying that. In fact, one of Peter's main arguments in this letter is that Christians are to live good lives that the pagans would recognize and affirm and celebrate, right? There's lies, rumors being spread around the Roman culture that Christians were corrupt rebels participating in horrific things. And Peter says, no, you need to live good lives that your, your non-Christian, your pagan neighbors can see and celebrate and honor. He calls them to more than that, but he calls them to that. But in the midst of this, Peter also knew that Rome didn't always live up to the ideals of her moral philosophers, right? And that much of Rome's worship and culture promoted a life of sensual indulgence and moral abandon. Do you see that in our world today? Sometimes. A life that many of Peter's original audience knew well as their own former way of living. As Peter says in verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery. The Greek word at the most basic level means abandon. The opposite of self-control or self-restraint, just a giving over of oneself. Abandon, debauchery, lust. Lust being an inordinate desire. So not that desire is bad, but where desire transcends what is intended for. Lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. A life ruled, obsessed, some would say tyrannized, by doing whatever it is you want to do in the moment. Now, if we're honest, when we read that list, some of us think it might feel a bit strained, classic sort of fundamentalist overstatement of the corruption of another. Um, strained, overplayed, an unfair straw man description of godlessness at its worst, a rare bachelor or bachelorette party weekend. But if you spent any time reading or studying ancient pagan religions, whether in the history books or just maybe even historical fiction, you'll know that much of what Peter is describing here is not as much Friday night living or frat house insanity 
as it is actually a description of the very things that characterize the worship of the ancient Roman gods and goddesses, and constantly what characterized Roman culture at large. As one historian notes, Peter's list of vices here, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, describe well the activities one would find practiced at the Roman festivals, practiced at the Bacchus and Saturnalia festivals, of which every good Roman would be expected to show up for and participate in. Honestly, I did a quick Google search of an image to use that represents the ancient Roman Saturnalia festival, which corresponds for us with Christmas. It's celebrated on December 23rd. And Peter's list here is sadly incredibly precise, which made none of the images appropriate to share on a Sunday morning in church. It's that. That's what the Roman festivals were characterized by that all the Romans in worship of their self-seeking, self-indulgence, self-indulgent gods were invited to come and participate in. And the grace of God, according to the Apostle Peter, many of his fellow Christians in his day had turned from this, had followed Jesus in concrete ways that meant the intentional disentangling of themselves from the corrupt practices and easy self-indulgence of their cultural moment and their own desires and social circles. As he says in verse 2, they did not live the rest of their earthly lives for, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God, which was costly, right? If the whole culture is saying, hey, it's, it's the festival, come, come, neighbors, come, hey, we're going, come on, it's starting, and you say, sorry, I'm not going because I don't worship that God anymore. I worship Jesus. And that's not what Jesus looks like. There's cost there, right? Cost in your community. Cost with your coworkers. Cost with your employer or with your master or with your pagan husband. As Peter describes in verse 4, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Which I think begins to get us back to what Peter is saying in his opening remark that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Because the dominant narrative that I hope you're starting to hear here is in this whole passage is not simply suffering or even physical suffering. But Peter is talking explicitly about the suffering that comes from following Jesus. The suffering, whether socially, economically, relationally, uh, that's the same as socially, uh, physically, the suffering that comes from saying yes to Jesus, and particularly a yes that involves or requires a no to something else, namely yourself. Be that a no to your own momentary desire, or simply to your desire to be liked and not rejected by others. Which I think begins to get at what Peter means when he says that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Although there are a number of different ways of interpreting this text, I am compelled that interpreted in context, there is this simple truth that Peter seems to be conveying here that following Jesus often involves and requires a choice between suffering or sin. A choice that 
many of us will need to make later today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. The choice between suffering and sin. To embrace suffering in the pursuit of Jesus as the consequence of following Jesus in his narrow way that leads to life and the cross that leads to resurrection or to reject suffering and embrace sin. This is what I think Peter is saying when he says whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. He's not saying that sin leaves when suffering shows up. He's saying that turning from sin often means saying yes to some sort of suffering. Or stated the other way, saying yes to suffering means we have already said no to sin. We've already turned our back on it. Hence, John Piper, reflecting on Peter's words here, counsels, choose suffering because if you don't, you will choose sin. But if you do, you will prove that your bondage to sin has been broken. And he may, in many ways throughout this passage, is not the Apostle Peter describing two fundamentally different ways to live, a life lived in pursuit of your own desires, hungers, cravings in this moment, along with others, or a life that is lived in pursuit of God's good and abiding desires and will, which will often bring some sort of rejection or suffering. A life lived at the whim of your sinful and fleeting impulses, desires, or a life lived at the impulse of God's deep and abiding desires, which will often bring some sort of suffering or cross. And what strikes me in this is this honest insight that so much of sin's life pull power is that it often comes simply by choosing the path of least resistance. Right? following the pressure, pull, urge of the moment in us or around us. Whether that's an attitude or a practice, a pursuit or even a perspective. Following the pressure, pull, urge of the moment in us or around us rather than resisting it. Doing what we want now, even though it may stand in the way of what we want most or need most. For a couple of years, I have carried with me this simple word of wisdom. I have no idea who said it to me. Don't give up what you want most for what you want now. And yet that is the path of so much sin. It's the path of least resistance in us and around us. It's the easy way that ends up so hard and so complicated in the long run, right? Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter makes this same observation. She writes, Peter's readers face the choice of either taking the path of least resistance, going along with the values, norms, and practices acceptable and expected by their society, or being obedient to God and suffering the consequences of criticism or condemnation by unbelieving family and friends. Their willingness to suffer this way demonstrates that they have resolved to be through with sin. Let me read that last line again. Their willingness to suffer this way, therefore, demonstrates that they have resolved to be through with sin. Or as Peter says, whoever suffers in the body 
is done with sin. But we don't want to, do we? Right? That's why so many of us continue to choose to ter- choose again, to return to past ways, sin that we know ruins us, that we've watched ruin others. Because we don't, we don't want to suffer, right? We'd rather sin than suffer, if we're honest, often. We'd rather give in yet again to the sin that destroys us than suffer the rejection of others or the desolation of feeling unfulfilled or the dull boredom of saying no to an adrenaline rush we have come back to again and again and again and that we feel we need, that we cannot live without as much as we hate it. We'd rather sin than suffer. Which Peter himself understood powerfully. It's one of the things I love about studying First Peter because we know so much of Peter's life. In truth, this is something the Apostle Peter himself had to learn because saying yes to suffering was not his first gut response. It was not his natural response. He wasn't somehow above the pull of sin or the struggle of suffering. Think of Peter in John 18, decades before he wrote this letter, before he was known as the Apostle Peter, leader of the church, but he was just one of Jesus' disciples and his name was Peter or sometimes Simon Peter. He'd been a disciple for Jesus for a few years at this point. In his journey, he'd come to believe with all of his being that Jesus was not just a rabbi, but God's Messiah, Israel's Messiah, the hope of the world, the one who would restore all things, would bring God's kingdom. It's a rumble there for effect. That was good. There you go. He'd come to believe, put all his hope in Jesus, but then Jesus had been arrested in the garden. And Peter found himself that night in hiding in the shadows of Jerusalem on the eve of the Passover, warming himself by a charcoal fire, keeping his distance from others, fearful of what Jesus' arrest would mean for him, right? Jesus had a reputation and they'd also, their faces had become familiar alongside of Jesus. And And so he kept himself at a distance as he hid in the shadows of the streets of Jerusalem that night. But this is a night Peter would never forget, right? Not just because of what happened to Jesus, what was happening to Jesus, but because of what he did that night in the shadows of those streets. Because of his denial of Jesus, his unwillingness to suffer for Jesus, to suffer the scorn of strangers, which he'd vowed he'd never do, right? Some of us know the story. Peter and the disciples, Jesus together, sharing the Last Supper together. And at the end of it, as Jesus starts to speak about what is going to happen and the challenge of it, Peter says in front of everyone, though everyone else will fall away, I will not. You know it, Jesus. You know it. I'm your guy. I'm your one. You can trust me. But in the dark night of Jesus' arrest, when asked by a stranger, servant girl, if he was one of Jesus' disciples, Peter 
unwilling to suffer for Jesus, denied his Lord three times. Let me ask you, did he love Jesus? Yes, he did. We know that. Not long after, he confessed it. But here's the thing. Though he loved Jesus, he loved himself more. And so he chose to deny Jesus instead of himself. To sin instead of to suffer. But all these years later, decades later, we find this same Peter, having followed Jesus now through so much, we find the same Peter now suffering willingly in Rome. Suffering willingly for Christ and inviting others, which includes us, to embrace suffering instead of sin. Why? Because as Peter discovered firsthand, even when he did not love Jesus, Jesus loved him more. Even when he chose himself over Jesus, Jesus loved him more. Even when he chose sin instead of suffering, Jesus loved him more, more than himself, so much so that Jesus would suffer for him who had turned from him. As the writer of the Hebrews beautifully declares, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him, the joy of reconciling Peter who had denied him. The joy of reconciling Peter and you and I to himself. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I didn't check when... uh, the letter of the Hebrews is thought to have been written. So I don't know if Peter would, could have read the letter of the Hebrews or if he knew the author. But it's, he seems to be saying the same thing. In 1 Peter 4 verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Since Christ suffered in the body for us, some translations actually say, arm yourselves with the same attitude. That's the command, the invitation at the heart of this passage. Arm yourselves with the same attitude as Jesus. Know this word attitude. The Greek word is anoia. Give me a little Greek lesson here. Say it with me, anoia. I've never done that before. That's so fun. Um, it's actually not that fun. Um, anoia. Almost every version of the Bible translates this differently. Attitude, mindset, moral armor, mental armor, intention, resolve, which could just seem like Greek trivia. But Peter's actually naming something so real here that deeper than our desires, when push comes to shove, we are all led by Anoia, by a deep attitude, mindset, intention, resolve, a deep in our bones conviction that even sin is better than suffering. Right? That suffering is the great no we must avoid at all costs. And yet according to Peter in Jesus, we see our, and, are, and are invited into something wholly different. A wholly different 
anoia, attitude, mindset, intention, resolve, that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. That saying yes to suffering for the sake of seeking and following Jesus, for the sake of seeking and following God's good and abiding will, though hard, is the one yes that will ultimately lead to life for us and for others. It's the choice that releases us from the tyranny of sin, the tyranny of the impulse of the moment to have our life wedded through faith to the yes of God. Too often we only think of the fight against sin as the fight to say no. And often it's a no we don't want to say, or sometimes, maybe often. And yet as Peter declares to us in this passage, the grace of the gospel invites us into the yes of God. The yes of the one who has said yes to us. To say yes to the one who has chosen us, even when we chose sin over him. To say yes to the one who loves us more, even when we've only loved ourselves. To say yes to the one who has and who does love us more. More than himself, so much so that he would suffer on the cross for you and for me. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude that whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. We're going to stop here. I don't think I need to say it again or more because I just find as I've lived with this this week, this name in something very real for me and I suspect it is for you. And so before we share in the Lord's Supper together, I just want to say to you, friends, today, where is God speaking to you in this? I wonder if some of you feel that you have been deeply named. And that can feel hard, and yet know that it's the love of God that calls us, right? It's the love of God that names our taking a different path and invites us back through the grace of repentance and faith. Peter says here, these words, uh, verse 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. And whether that list that he goes on to describe is your list or not, you have spent enough time, Peter says, Jesus says, it's time to live now in the yes of God rather than the death of sin. And that yes will bring suffering, but it's a suffering that is unto life. It's a cross that is unto resurrection in Jesus and with Jesus. So where have you chosen sin over suffering? Where are you choosing sin over suffering? Where have you or are you choosing the path of least resistance instead of obedience to the life-giving cross of Christ? Where are you being led by the lie, mindset, attitude, resolve? that your self-love is greater than Jesus' love for you. Come, Jesus says to all of us, come, follow me to the cross. Away from sin to the cross that leads to life for you and for all. Let's be still for a moment and then we'll share the Lord's Supper together. To invite you to speak to God what you need to.